You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com I'm the master of the universe. I'm looking for a job. I used to own a trading desk, but now I'm just a job. I treasured all your millions before they threw me out. If you still don't know what I am, I'll leave you in no doubt. I'm a banker, I'm a banker, that's why I bought soft grain. I thought it came in packets, but it's the size of Spain. It's tough about your mortgages and homeless children too. We've all run out of money now. I'm just the same as you. I'm a banker, I'm a banker, we all made lots of dough. That's why the price of wheat went up about a year ago. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you on this second day of May 2010. I'd like to welcome all the listeners back to the Corbett Report and, as always, invite them to check out the websites alqaedadoesnexist.com, climategate.tv, reportagebook.com, and, of course, the flagship website corbettreport.com as well as those partners and affiliates that help to podcast, broadcast, and syndicate this podcast, such as archive.org, cascadiapublicradio.org, radioforall.net, tragedyandhope.com, zeropointradio.com, and mediamonarchy.com. Now, I'm afraid to say that, as you may be able to tell, I have fallen a bit ill over the last couple of days, and really will not be able to do the regular podcast as regularly scheduled. So this this week there will be no Sunday update, and this week's podcast episode will be a documentary-style episode where I will just be playing clips without any commentary while I try to recuperate from this illness. So please bear with me, but I think that the clips I have lined up for today will still be instructive on today's topic, which is episode 130, Wither Europe, where we talk about the European monetary crisis and the crisis that's happening in Greece right now. Also, on the note of rest and recuperation, you may have noticed I've been doing even more work than usual lately on the website, and I really do need a a little bit of time off, so as of this week, this will be the final episode of the podcast until later this month. Uh, I'll be taking two or three weeks off for a little bit of rest and recuperation, so please bear with me during this time. I have some interviews scheduled during this time, so you will see some of those popping up at uh, random intervals and maybe some articles as well, but for the most part, I will be taking this time completely off, so... Thank you, as always, for your support, and I look forward to rejoining you well-rested and recuperated and ready to take on new issues later this month. Uh, So until then, thank you again for your support, and please enjoy episode 130, Wither Europe. Well, we want to give you some background on Greece's debt crisis. EU officials say Greece's government has overspent and fudged their financial figures for years. The government in Athens recently revealed that last year's budget deficit was three times bigger as previously estimated. In fact, the budget deficit now equals 12% of the country's gross domestic product. Investors fear Greece could soon default on its debts. Well, Greece may need a bailout or loan from other Eurozone countries to pay back the $74 billion in loans due this year. And the country's prime minister is now proposing deep budget cuts, a wage freeze for government workers, and tax increases to bring down its massive deficit. And we are seeing the results of those moves in Athens at this hour with the strikes. Well, we want to get more now on the worldwide fallout of this with Jim Bolton from our uh, London Bureau. And Jim, we look at the, the, I guess, the ripple effects of what is happening in Greece right now. The Eurozone is in a very tenuous situation right now, and the Euro in itself is very fragile. Yes, what we've seen over the last few weeks is the markets reacting very strongly against this Greek budget deficit. And the way you see that is the weakening of the euro against the dollar over the, over the last few weeks. And we see it with worries about this budget deficit. And that's hit, it, hit the stock markets. And that's where you see it affects more than just what's happening in Greece. And the reason is, is that the markets are saying maybe Greece cannot pay back its, uh, the interest on these loans. And that's why the last few days you've seen the markets reacting the other way. That's where the barometer is. Very strong uh, gains in 
stock markets, a rebound for the euro, and that's because of talk coming out that there could be some sort of help coming from the European Union. Now, Manita, the European Union cannot bail out Greece. It doesn't work that way. There's talk, though, of loan guarantees coming from countries like France, from countries like Germany, and that's for confidence. A loan guarantee doesn't mean any money will change hands, but it may just be enough to back up what Greece is doing, and that could help the markets. The crisis that began in Athens started as a budget problem on the periphery of Europe. Now it's a credibility problem right at the centre of Europe. Because if Greece should need a bailout, there are no mechanisms to do it, no rules that allow it, and the markets suspect no political will in Brussels to make it happen. And for currency traders, that's what they call an opportunity. In the past seven days, hedge funds and banks have built up so-called short positions on the euro, totaling $8 billion. It's a one-way bet on the value of the euro falling as Europe grapples to resolve the Greek budget crisis. Finance ministers are crying speculation. To the bankers, it's just common sense. Well, in foreign exchange, um, I'm afraid to say, and I sit uh, surrounded by a lot of traders, it's not a game of morality, it's a relative game. And relative to how we were last year, the euro looks weakened. And therefore, you sell it. And that's how it works. When countries run up too much debt, historically, there are four ways out. Devalue the currency. Not possible for Greece, as it's in the euro. Slash interest rates. Not possible, because the rates are set by the European Central Bank. Print money and buy up debt. Not possible for Greece to do alone. And then, there's a bailout. EU rules say that's not allowed, but it's what the finance ministers are frantically discussing. Well, is there a contingency for it? No, there is not. And this is what the test is. What does uh, the treaty say? Uh, you could put the treaty on the ground and all the treaties and you'd be eight foot tall. So you'd have to read through them. The interpretations are different. And this is the, the puzzle. And this is going to set precedent for Europe for the future. Now, the concern has spread from Greece to other highly indebted countries. The Eurozone rules say budget deficits should be below 3%. In Greece, it's 13%. For Spain, 11.4%. And Portugal, 9.3% of GDP. Any problems, big problems with Greece, is that it'll affect Italy, uh, it'll affect Spain, it'll affect Ireland, could move on to France, and that would be devastating. So, you've got to nip it in the bud. And if Greece doesn't, what should Spain do? What should Portugal do? Take austerity or go for a bailout? And these are the moral hazards in financial markets that we face. What's happening right now is that the financial markets are staging a test of credibility for these governments. Effectively, the bond traders are trying to force them down the path of further, faster austerity measures. Spain's finance minister has accused the markets of dirty dealing. But again, it comes down to the politics of austerity. I think that it's very difficult to a government like the, government, the socialist government of Spain to adopt the necessary measurement that it needs to control the fiscal deficit. It needs to increase taxes, it needs to control the expenditure, it needs to freeze uh, the payment of public employees. All those type of policies, you need to have a strong backup, a strong support to, to take them. I think that it's a, it's a big doubt that this government will be able to make those type of policies. Right now, there's shuttle diplomacy, with each of the countries whose sovereign debts are being questioned, trying to bolster confidence. But, as in Greece, it'll ultimately come down to a prolonged battle to enforce tax rises, public spending cuts, wage cuts, pension cuts. It's fundamentally a political issue about treading a very narrow line between radical structural change and social cohesion. And I think that the financial markets will certainly discriminate very sharply, uh, eventually, between those countries that can tread that line uh, and, and take risks with both structural reform and social cohesion, and those that can't. The sovereign debt crisis has exposed a flaw in the design of the Eurozone. To make a currency strong, you don't just need banknotes and a central bank, you need central authority and political will. Some in the markets are beginning to see the euro not as a permanent currency for all time, but as temporary and fragile as, well, Lehman Brothers.
It looks like Greece has been bonding with the wrong crowd. Goldman Sachs is being blamed for designing a complex debt plan that earned them millions, but maybe leaving the country in ruins. Megan Carpenter is a contributor for the Washington Independent. She joins us now from our New York studio. Megan, first we bail out Goldman Sachs. Now there are reports that Goldman Sachs designed a plan to help Greece hide its debt, which could in turn spur another global financial crisis. What is going on here? Well, that's a, a complex question to answer, which I'll try to condense down. In effect, uh, when Greece entered the Eurozone, they fudged some of the numbers about their deficits and continued to pile them up. And Goldman Sachs worked with them in 2005 to design a plan by which they would issue bonds in another currency and use a fake exchange rate to reap more money out of that than they should have, something that they would then be paying off in a couple of years. Now that the debt crisis has intensified in Greece, these numbers are coming to light because the statistical agency in the Eurozone has looked into Greece's figures and said, hey, these aren't quite right. And the more they dig in, the more they realize that Greece was more in debt all along than anybody realized except Greece and, it turns out, Goldman Sachs. Well, talk to me about uh, the connection, Greece and the United States. What will happen if Greece falls into this crisis? Is it possible that this could, again, have an impact on the United States? Well, I, that's what most analysts are saying, that, the, that there will be some uh, impact coming back to the United States just because whatever plan goes through in Europe, there's the global economy is so connected that something will blow back in the United States. Goldman Sachs actually sold its stake in this Greek mess that it contributed back to a Greek bank in order to minimize its own risk. So Goldman Sachs is now out of the mess that it got Greece into, and Greece is stuck with these debts from Goldman Sachs. Something will be blowing back to the United States if this crisis gets a lot worse. Yeah, it seems like a lot of things are interconnected these days. But, you know, let's break this down. Nothing that Goldman Sachs did was illegal, and yet millions of people could be in some real trouble here. How can we minimize the effects this has on our economy? Well, I think what the administration is trying to do and what they're trying to do in Europe is bring a level of transparency to the financial sector. One of the biggest problems that caused the housing meltdown and the financial crisis in the United States in the first place was trading in complex financial instruments that no one, either trading or buying them, really understood to a great degree. Everyone made money to start with, so no one looked into them too deeply. Then when it turns out that they were all kind of losing propositions, no one understood what they were. It's taking years to just unwind the credit default swaps that Goldman and AIG engaged in, and we're still not even done with that yet. So the idea of bringing more transparency to the system to reducing this, the too-big-to-fail problem where one company's failure can bring down an entire economy is something that U.S. regulators and global regulators are trying to figure out a way around. Max Kaiser, the other two gentlemen characterized this as, as being, uh, Greece being in a position where it had no other alternatives. What do you make of it? Well, first of all, put down the Uzo, and let's talk about some facts here. This uh, debt-to-GDP ratio, which is now crippling the country, it was the same back in the year 2000. Why was it not reported? Because Goldman Sachs, in conjunction with the Greek government, hid billions and billions of debt. Now, this is the problem. The problem is that you've got bankers like Goldman Sachs and Wall Street colluding with the Greek government to falsify data. To rectify the problem, the Greek government is sent in their intelligence agency to investigate what's going on, and they've hired a former Goldman Sachs banker to head up this uh, particular investigation. So they've got Stockholm Syndrome. They're being held captive by corrupt bankers on Wall Street, and they're blaming themselves. They're beating themselves for somebody else's corruption. That's the corruption on Wall Street. Now, you have to laugh at this ridiculous situation because... Here you've got two Greek analysts saying that, well, we should pay more taxes. We need to get rid of the black market. 
And yet Goldman Sachs, who advised them on this corruption last year, paid less than 1% in taxes. Mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs doesn't pay any taxes. So to finance Goldman Sachs Christmas bonuses, you're going to ask the Greek people to pay more taxes? Do the Greek people get compensated from Goldman Sachs? Do they own stock in Goldman Sachs? This is absurd. Why are you selling your countrymen down the okay, road? Let's... And to say there's no alternative is false. There's insurrection is a possibility. Why not get rid of it? Max Kaiser, we know there's not going to be a bailout from France, Germany, the, the big countries within the European Union. Could Greece maybe go to the IMF for help, or would that be even worse? Jumping out of the uh, frying pan and into the fire. I mean, the IMF is Goldman Sachs. The IMF, World Bank, Goldman Sachs. Uh, Wall Street, they're all commingled. They're all working together. This has been now obvious since the credit collapse starting two years ago. As Warren Buffett said, when the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing a bathing suit. Now, as the credit crunch has basically deprived these countries and these companies in these countries of credit, we're seeing who is not capable of dealing in the credit crunch. And Greece is an obvious example, but so too is Spain and the other so-called pig nations. But we also see it in Iceland. Uh, which is having a vote on March 6th, whether or not to appease uh, the financial terrorists on Wall Street, who did the same thing to Iceland. But here's the thing about France and Germany. Germany is the number two exporter in the world. They don't mind if the euro goes down. So they're using Greece as a whipping boy. They'll say, look at Greece. We need to go in there and reform Greece. Look at bad Greece. Oh, the euro's in trouble. But they benefit hugely by the depression in the euro. Because Max, at, a time, at a time Greece of high no unemployment exporter. at home and coming out of a recession, how do the likes of France and Germany justify to, to their people that they need to give more money to Greece? That's at the crux of it, isn't it? Well, they're going to jawbone this issue all, all day long, but not take any action because they know that the professional speculators are driving down the, the euro. The, the short position, which are the negative bets on the euro, are at a historic high. Billions and billions of euros and dollars are bet on the euro's failure. Chief beneficiary of this is going to be Germany, who's a huge export market. So they're just using uh, basically Greece and the poor people in Greece who are losing their jobs and have to go through austerity measures. It has absolutely nothing to do with fundamental reform of that economy. They're basically sausage going through the Wall Street banking machine and they need to uh, ban Goldman Sachs from doing business in their country. They need to ban Wall Street firms from doing any business in their country. Until you get rid of the financial terrorists in your country, your country is going to continue to lose jobs, unemployment is going to go up, and the quality of life is going to continue to go down because you're being held captive by financial terrorists. Don't you get it? Get rid of them. Or maybe you like being abused by terrorists. That could be your thing. You know, a lot of people enjoy that kind of uh, sadomasochism. That might be something you're into. But okay. if you're not into that, get rid of the financial terrorists from your country. Even the police came out in protest today. Their presence warmly appreciated by the largest crowd that has taken to the streets during this crisis many thousands perhaps encouraged by new opinion polls showing most Greeks are against many of the wage cuts and tax rises introduced by the government Manolis Glezos now in his late 80s is a respected figure on the Greek left a hero of the anti-Nazi resistance during the Second World War in a previous demonstration last week he was overcome by tear gas and was taken to hospital like many on the left, he believes Greece has been betrayed by European partners and its own government. Of course, measures have to be taken, but they didn't have to be in this direction. At the moment, the public is paying for the budget deficit, but really it's the wealthy who should be paying for this crisis. Despite all the protests and all the strikes now going on in Greece, it's not clear that the government here has much room for manoeuvre. It's under great pressure from financial markets as it seeks to borrow more money at reasonable rates. And it's under pressure from other European governments to push through this austerity program. The Prime Minister, George Papandreou, has been touring major capitals, arguing that Greece needs help against speculators who are driving up the price of borrowing. He gets a sympathetic hearing, but he's also told that Greece has to bring its own finances under control. Back in Athens, the temperature is rising. Skirmishes with police in the city centre and targeted attacks on banks and luxury shops. 
Markets may be encouraged by the Greek government's latest policies, but the anger on the streets is beginning to grow. Well, with developments up to today, what do you see happening for Greece tomorrow? Well, Greece is just part of again making all、uh, connecting all things. Let's look at the recent history of what's been going on, and and again,、uh, a way of tracking trends is an understanding of how we got here to see where we are and then where we're going. So over the last decade or so, there's been rampant speculation worldwide. People from Russia to China, from Australia to the UK to the US, everyone's been on a borrowing binge: borrow cheap, get in debt above your head, and try to spend your way into prosperity. And that game is ending. And Greece is just one of the many countries that are falling as a result of that. Whether it happened with the US in the Panic of '08, the great real estate boom collapsed. Eastern Europe, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Ukraine. There's not a country in the world that has not overspent with cheap money. And just with Greece, it's just coming home to roost because their economy is one of the weaker ones. Now, the Greek Prime Minister George Papandreou met with the French President Nicolas Sarkozy on Sunday. Sarkozy sent out a message to speculators, telling them that they should beware because the eurozone's biggest powers will back Greece through the debt crisis that has jeopardized all 16 nations in the common crisis. Now, will Sarkozy's warning bear fruit? Will the speculators back off? Of course, it won't bear fruit. It's just political jive talk. Look what's going on in the United States. We had this great crisis. Let me make something very clear for all those people that still have a brain that could think. This is not capitalism. This is not free markets. Wall Street has hijacked Washington, and the global financiers have hijacked the entire system. Just look at the names involved. Now they're talking about the Goldman Sachs gang doing their dirty deeds in Greece. How about what happened in the U.S.? Only a simpleton can't see the connections. Who was the Treasury Secretary under George Bush? Henry Paulson. Where did he come from? He was the CEO of Goldman Sachs. What happened when the financial crisis hit the U.S. in September of 2008? They bailed out the Goldman Sachs gang. The Merrill Lynch mob. Can't people see what's going on over here? These politicians are nothing but pawns for the system that puts them into place. Again, this isn't rhetoric. Look where they get their money from. Look where they get their backing from. These are the kind of statements Sarkozy, Brown, and Obama make only to placate the public, pretending that they're doing something. Now that you mentioned Obama, the Greek Prime Minister is also going to see Obama on Tuesday. Can we expect anything from this meeting? Well, what can you expect from Obama, the man of change and hope? He's recreated the entire system that existed before. Look at the people in the government. Where did the U.S. Treasury Secretary come from? Oh, he was the former president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Who's his chief aide? He's from Goldman Sachs. Who's the head of the Commodities Future Exchange Commission? He's from Goldman Sachs. Who are the people that deregulated the entire system? Go back, go over the numbers, look at the facts. Robert Rubin under the Clinton administration. Where was he from? Goldman Sachs. As I said, only only the deaf, the blind, the ignorant, or those that are afraid to face the future can't see what's going on. The global economy has been hijacked. It's the biggest bank robbery in world history. But the banks are doing the robbing. So, what can the citizens of this world do? Continue to do what the Greek people are doing. Keep going out to the streets. Keep protesting and keep it peaceful. These provocateurs, more than likely, are not anarchists. They're government plants. The people need to step up, regain their dignity, speak out, and stop listening to these people that have less intelligence and morality than the average person. How can anybody follow their leaders? And and people have to start thinking for themselves. Start getting involved and understanding the facts. Don't stop demonstrating. Demand their rights. And also, people have to accept their own responsibility 
for creating the problems that they've also created by over-borrowing and going too deep into debt. They have to cut back on expenses. They have to go back to what makes Europe Europe, and that is the quality of life, the quality of the foods, the quality of the family, the quality of the diversity. Stop buying into this global game. Since the Euros come about, everybody knows what's happened. Inflation has eaten away at the standard of living of the average person. The only people it's benefited are the big banks, the big brokerages, and the big cons. And that was trans forecaster Gerald Salente. Well, uh, Mr. Chapman, today I wanted to talk specifically about the crisis that we see unfolding in Europe, and I'm not sure exactly how to define that crisis, uh, but there certainly seems to be a number of forces at play that seem to be threatening the European project, and I note that in the latest edition of the uh, International Forecaster, you even note that George Soros is talking about how the European project has is stalled, and it may be going backwards. So definitely some, some titanic forces at play right at the moment, and we see things like, of course, the, uh, the situation in Greece. And, and many other things that are unfolding right now. But before we get into some of the specifics about what, what's happening, uh, maybe we can set the scene a little bit and talk a little bit about your experience with Europe, because I know that you've lived there before. So, so tell us a little bit about your, your time in Europe and, and uh, your take on the European culture in general. Well, the culture uh, certainly changes from state to state. Uh, a state in the sense uh, that it's a a region, or uh, like in Germany, a Kreis, which is a state. And uh, the the differences in people uh, and the way they act in different areas is enormous. I mean, people don't realize that Europe uh, is a conglomeration of tribes, and it still is. And you go to Munich, and they speak Bayerisch, and you go over to Stuttgart, and, and they speak Schwabisch, and, and you go into North and Central Germany and they speak Plattdeutsch. And, and so there is distinct differences still after thousands of years. And I lived in Germany for several years and in France, uh, Copenhagen, London, uh, in Barcelona, uh, Zurich, Geneva. I went to school in Geneva for French at the interpreter's school at the uh, Université de Genève. And, um, and uh, so I, I, I got to see a, an awful lot of things over the years that I lived there, which were uh, basically contiguous. Uh, my first introduction was when I was working in Army counterintelligence. And my job, like a handful of others, was to spy on the Soviet Union and its satellites. And so uh, the educational process was not only local and domestic, uh, but it was far-ranging because uh, we used to intercept the communications of the Russians and, and others behind the Iron Curtain. And, of course, they did the same with us, uh, probably with relatively the same success, maybe not as good, but... Uh, they were uh, they were very good adversaries, so to speak. Uh, they knew what they were doing, and and so y you got a lot of perspectives about uh, the involvement of people in Western Europe in spying. Uh, they think nothing of it as long as it pays well, and uh, that might be surprising to Americans, but uh, it uh, it isn't to Europeans. In fact, after East and West Germany came together, uh, it was found that uh, there were many, many, many people in Western Germany at that time when the amalgamation finally came back together again that were working uh, for the Stasi and the, and, the, uh, and the Russian counterintelligence operations from the lowest level. But anyway... Uh, that's a prelude to the fact that the European Union, 27 countries, was an unnatural conglomeration of groups. And when you have that kind of diversity, 
you can never really put them together as a unit, whether it's constitutionally or financially. It just doesn't work. I mean, they can't even get along with each other in their own countries. And, and that's pretty obvious sometimes. And so with that said, they formed uh, a little over uh, 10 years ago the European Eurozone, of which originally there were 14 members out of 16. And Greece and Italy were two of them, and they should have never been admitted. And in that process, the Germans and the French particularly, and the Dutch, who were the powers within the Eurozone, uh, particularly German, they looked the other way. They knew what was going on. Uh, they knew Goldman Sachs were making up bogus books for both countries, and they knew that in time there probably would be problems, but they wanted the unit, and they also wanted the ability to be able to export to these other countries within the Union because there weren't any tariffs. And that's how the, the problem came about. So there was some blame to be laid on the other more powerful members of the Eurozone, as well as the uh, profligate uh, Greeks and uh, Italians, and eventually even uh, the Spanish, the Portuguese, and Ireland, uh, all of which are in trouble. I call them the pigs, P-I-I-G-S. And so you, you had a situation which was bad from the very beginning. Now, the big question is, why did they decide, they, the people who make the decisions behind the scenes, why did they decide to bring Greek to the, Greece to the attention of the world at this particular time a few months ago? And I think the reason why is I think they realize that the European Union and the Eurozone are a broken effort it's not working. And I don't believe it could have ever worked in the first place. But because these people are bent toward world government, they had to try it. And they've tried it innumerable times before, <coughs> being equally unsuccessful. And uh, history is replete with their mistakes, incidentally. And so I think that they are ready to make some dramatic changes behind the scenes. And I think the comment, comments of George Soros bear this out. They had the color uh, revolutions in Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and these other places, all of which were successful at the beginning. And over the last four to five years, they've all come apart. And probably one of the worst examples is Ukraine. And, you know, the people are just wandering around, what do we do next? And so I think what's happening here is that the people behind the scenes, their involvement still is for world government. This is what they're after. And I think they're changing gears here. And the reason they are is they're going to slowly and subtly and secretly take down these countries, but I think they're going to do it simultaneously. And I think they're lining them up. There's 19 countries that are uh, close to or into bankruptcy. And that includes the United Kingdom as well as the U.S., uh, the, you know, the United States. And so I believe that somewhere along the line over the next year or two, maybe a little bit longer, that there is going to be a default on a multilateral basis of debts between countries, sovereign governments, and a general overall devaluation of currencies, all to some extent. Uh, how it will work will remain to be seen. And I think they'll introduce as the new international trading unit, a G7 unit, which will be based upon a weighted index which will change all the time and which will be available all the time for world trade or at least trade with those who trade with uh, Europe. 
And so that's the, the direction I think they're taking this. And I think it's being done deliberately. And I think they realize that the only way they can implement world government is from the top down. And in so doing that, they have to bring the world economically and financially to its knees in order to get the world to accept this world government, which will be accompanied by another major war. We have now shipped the baton. The baton is not now in the hands of the industrialized world. The baton is in the hands of a grouping of countries which comprehends the industrialized core countries and the emerging economies. And uh, one of the invisible events which uh, uh, was uh, in uh, uh, the succession of events in Washington last days was that there was no G7 communique and there was no G7 briefing. The, G the, the, the communique and the briefings were the G20. So uh, again, this is at the level of uh, global governance something which I trust is of its utmost importance. And I would say uh, that uh, we owe this transformation, which again has been prepared. It is something which, is, which didn't, didn't come as a, a, a sharp and, I would say, a, a, an expected event, because the G20 existed already. But this shift from the G7 to the G20, we owe it, it, it seems to me, obviously, because it was overdue that these economies that were <clears throat> obviously systemic at the global level would uh, have a full ownership of this uh, global governance at the level of this informal grouping uh, that I mentioned. But, um, uh, and that's of course something which uh, uh, appears absolutely obvious. I trust also that there is a second reason. Perhaps the industrialized country proved that they were quite clumsy themselves in running their own economy, which are uh, and remain, of course, at the core of global finance and of the global economy. And that is something that uh, we have to take fully into account. It is of utmost importance that the new Basel rules that we are preparing, and we are in an intense phase of uh, discussion uh, after having uh, had the, in, uh, the input of the industry, the industry uh, was in dialogue with the Basel Committee. We have this uh, industry response, and uh, now we have to engage in calibration and in a calibration exercise, which is, of course, of uh, utmost importance, and we have to engage in uh, the impact studies to, to see exactly how to optimize the new rules, particularly in terms of capital requirements, in terms of uh, liquidity monitoring, and uh, all what is the core of the new banking supervision. And uh, I'm speaking under the control of Bill, who knows that better than anybody. Uh, but what I would insist on is that it is extremely important that we have really a level uh, uh, playing field, that we have really uh, at the global uh, level the same rules being applied by all. Uh, this is very, very important uh, in my understanding, of course, for the good and appropriate functioning of global finance. It is extremely important that we, in this new ownership of global governance, have particularly on both sides of the Atlantic the implementation of the same rules in the same fashion, not to uh, create the sentiment between us uh, on both sides of the Atlantic that we are not in the same universe, which would be probably a very big mistake. And also, with all the friends that are coming from the emerging world, not to give the abominable example, then after having created the G20 as the prime grouping for global governance, we are clumsy enough to have difference of views and not appropriate uh, implementation on both sides of the Atlantic. This is true for the, this is true for absolutely everything. Of course, for uh, the Basel rules, and I would say also 
Of course, but I know that it is delicate for the accounting rules. Uh, we cannot afford to have uh, different rules, significantly different rules on both sides of the Atlantic and at the global level with the ISB on the one hand and the FASB at the other hand. This is also something which has to be fixed. Uh, it is extremely important. So this morning, Greece activates the European Union IMF bailout, $56 billion uh, U.S. equivalent. Uh, and of course, once you get the IMF into the act, you're, caught, you're talking about bone-crushing, deadly austerity. Don't listen to all the garbage in the media about how Greeks live high on the hog and how they're enjoying these wonderful lifestyles. This is all baloney. This is a, uh, a relatively impoverished Mediterranean country. Don't kid yourself. And if they've, they've got some solace from vacations or long afternoons, uh, look at the actual conversion tables and you'll see what they live on. And it's, it's not pretty. And also, don't listen to this garbage. The entire U.S. media line is to somehow play Greece against Germany. And you can see the hedge fund line is to break up the European Union. Uh, to destroy the euro, and whatever you think about the euro, the chaotic collapse of the euro is in nobody's interest. It represents a huge degradation of the world financial system and a victory for the hedge funds. What you've got to do, of course, again and again in this world is figure out what the finance oligarchs are doing. Figure out what the Wall Street financiers and their London, city of London financiers, what are they doing, and get yourself on the other side. Fight back. And if you're not fighting bankers in some form, you're absolutely wasting your time because the main focus of evil in the modern world is finance capital. Not industrial capital, but finance capital. If we could only mobilize some industrial capital to fight back against finance capital, we'd be a whole lot better off. So the, uh, the word now is we have Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the former French finance minister, a monetarist jackal in his own right, Dominique Strauss-Kahn says that the International Monetary Fund will move quickly on the request from Greece. We are prepared to move expeditiously on this request, yes, to impose another round of deadly austerity. They already had one or two rounds of uh, absolutely draconian cuts, and now we're going to see burning time come to Greece, ungovernability, right? The Greeks, uh, fortunately for them, have got some unions in the public and private sector that will fight back against this. We don't have that in the United States. We have Tea Party fanatics who run around saying, we want more austerity, please carve more out of our flesh. The elementary class consciousness of the average Greek is better, certainly, than the elementary class consciousness of the people here in the U.S. Remember, class consciousness means Plato, and it means that there's an oligarchy, and if you're not part of it, you better it, you've got to check it and balance it somehow and uh, make sure that this doesn't become the uh, overriding principle in society. The other thing to watch in this crisis is the German it's Wolfgang Schäuble. He is dirty. He is a sinister figure. Uh, he has stressed that uh, a group of experts from the European Central Bank and the International Monetary Fund would need to confirm whether Greece really needs the aid. Well, this entire method of bailouts, of course, is a disaster. It's a failure. It won't work. Uh, it doesn't solve anything. The Greeks would need to think, if they had their own currency, they would need to think about capital controls and exchange controls, and they would need to think about very concrete measures against the hedge funds. Let's just remind everybody who the hedge funds are it, but basically it's the same group of predatory hedge funds which attacked Lehman Brothers and drove it into bankruptcy. Now you might say, well, Lehman Brothers bankrupt, fine, but the particular chaotic way in which this happened was due to the fact that once the bubble began to come down, the hedge funds began to try to uh, essentially make their own profits out of the collapsing bubble. And in that context, we have to mention Paulson and Company, the hedge fund which is now in the middle of this dirty case of this of uh, Goldman Sachs 
designing a CDO, a collateralized debt obligation, designed to fail, designed to go bankrupt, and then selling that to some suckers from Germany and other places around the world. Yeah, that's John Paulson and company. And John Paulson is one of the people leading the attack on Greece. Uh, as soon as, of course, you say Lehman Brothers and their bankruptcy, you've got to mention David Einhorn of Greenlight Capital, that other predatory hedge fund. And he took the uh, public role of uh, pointing out all of the inconsistencies in Lehman Brothers accounting uh, and so forth, not, not as a disinterested public service, but so that he could make billions out of it. So we've got the predators from Paulson and Company. We've got the predators from David Einhorn's Greenlight Capital. We've got Donald Morgan from Brigade Capital. He was part of the Idea Dinner at uh, Moness, Crespi, and Hart there on February 8th. We've got SAC Capital Advisors, also part of the attack on Lehman Brothers. We've got, above all, Soros Fund Management, because the ideologue, the flagship of this group of hedge funds, Soros Fund Management, don't forget his friend Stanley Drunkenmiller, <laughs> Stanley Druckenmiller, uh, and we've got, uh, of course, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and Barclays Bank. Uh, Barclays, of course, played a key role in bringing down Lehman Brothers. So once the bubble begins to collapse, the bubble is objectively there. It's not the idea that this is all a conspiracy from beginning to end. It has objective features that set the stage and which are indispensable. Without that, the hedge funds could not act. But once you've got a bubble and once the bubble has peaked, then, of course, the hedge funds move in and attempt to precipitate the collapse of the bubble in such a way that they make money out of it. And that's what's happening vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Greece. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It's the 30th of April, 2010, and today I'm jo joined on the line by Helen Scopus, a journalist with Athens International Radio, 104.4 FM in Athens, Greece. Helen Scopus, thank you very much for joining us today on the Corbett Report. It's my pleasure, James. Thank you. Well, it, it's very timely to have you on the program right now, as uh, I'm sure you're aware, and I'm sure many of my listeners are aware as well. The uh, Greek sovereign debt crisis continues to spiral out of control, with things seemingly getting worse and worse by the day, although today there has been a new rescue plan that is apparently being worked on by the European Commission, the IMF, and the uh, European Central Bank, which will supposedly inject another 120 billion dollars into uh, 120 billion euros sorry into the greek economy but we see the sovereign debt crisis starting to spill over into uh, into other countries like spain and portugal now and we see really an unraveling of the european monetary zone and uh, some very troubling signs for the world economy in general but uh, we also are getting reports of increased uh, disturbances on the streets of uh, of athens and more demonstrations and things happening in Greece as the people start to feel the uh, the effects of the uh, IMF bailout, bailout, which is obviously going to come with some severe austerity measures. So, Helen Scopus, what can you tell us about what people are feeling on the streets there and what the general sentiment among the Greek people is right now? Well, first of all, the past few days, Greece has felt like, the people of Greece have felt like they're under attack. And they feel as if their economy is being attacked and there's nothing they can do about it. Um, the people are angry. The people are, uh, they feel that, that it's unfair that they should be called upon to pay for this, let's say, deficit and debt that the country has. Um, they are, the unions and the citizens have taken to the streets already. There are, there's a lot of strike action planned for this week. Tomorrow, or let's say, Saturday, May the 1st, is Labor Day, something like Labor Day here in Greece, and there is strike action planned. On Wednesday, May the 5th, we have a nationwide general strike. These strikes are usually called by the trade unions and the political affiliated unions, so everyone more or less is going to be on strike on Wednesday. And on Sunday, May 9th, we have a first for Greece. We have a citizens' sit-in protest. There are no people's movements here in uh, Greece yet, at least. And this is the first time that I've seen uh, 
a citizen's protest uh, being scheduled to take place in the center of Athens. And uh, it's a sit-in, and uh, everybody's pretty curious to see how that's going to turn out. Now, the reason why... Uh, the reason why we took this initiative for the citizens' protest is that usually strikes here in Greece are conducted under the umbrella of the unions or the political parties, and there are a lot of citizens that do not want to take part in them because they feel as if they are to blame for the situation that Greece finds itself in today. So this is why we are all very curious to see what is going to happen on Sunday, May the 9th. That is actually very exciting news, and I think it is important to have uh, citizen protests as opposed to ones that are, are led by uh, pol political parties or, or unions. So, so uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about the details of that uh, protest. It's going to take place in uh, Syndagma Square. Syndagma is a Greek word for constitution. It's in the center of Athens. It's right outside the parliament building. And um, what the announcement is saying is that... Um, IMF involvement in Greece has to be ratified by Parliament, and this is something they have not done yet, and it's unclear whether the government intends to pass this accord or agreement through Parliament. According to the Greek Constitution, any, any agreement that deals with giving up some kind of sovereignty uh, has to be voted on in Parliament and three-fifths three-fifths of, three of the members of parliament have to vote in favor of it, in favor of this uh, agreement or accord. So this is the main concept behind this protest. Of course, there are other issues there, like uh, they feel as if their country has been sold out. Uh, they disagree to the austerity measures. They feel as if, like I mentioned earlier, they shouldn't have to pay for this. It's not the people's fault. And they don't really understand why there's IMF involvement in a European country. Well, absolutely. The IMF obviously uh, often seen as an arm of uh, American uh, foreign policy and financial policy around the world. So that uh, to have that operating in the European Union is an extremely large event. And and uh, uh, we see some parallels between the situation in Greece and uh, the situation in Iceland with the people there also begin beginning a, a, a spontaneous citizens movement against the uh, the austerity measures that were being proposed by the government and, and really the citizens taking over the government there. And I know you've talked to Birgitta Jonsjodir of the uh, the People's Movement in I Iceland. So what can you say about the possibility of such a, such a movement obtaining a similar goal in Greece? I think it's quite probable. And as a matter of fact, I spoke with Birgitta about this, especially about the protest. And uh, I would like to say that Iceland... Uh, and other European countries, I think Spain and Portugal, I'm not completely sure which uh, countries will um, participate, but from up to now, it's Iceland for sure, Spain, Portugal, Germany has said they would uh, participate, and France. Now, I don't know about other European countries. They will be protesting on the same day, at the same time, in solidarity with the Greek people. Now, as far as, far as the people's movement in Greece is uh, concerned, I think it's quite probable most citizens are completely fed up with the, the politicians. They feel as if they are corrupt. It's a corrupt political system. And this is what has brought them to this situation. You got, of course, some people come out, uh, Diana, for, for May Day anyway, but other groups, uh, in particular workers' unions, are using this day and this opportunity as well to let their voices be heard and uh, not necessarily all peaceful out there on the streets of Athens, Diana. It is certainly not all peaceful, TJ, that's right. We've been in amongst clouds of tear gas. Uh, we've seen uh, fires, I don't know if they were petrol bombs, but there have certainly been scuffles, really just within the last 45 minutes. But as you say, there are basically two groups here. There are, I mean, it is International uh, Labor Day, so the opportunity for workers and workers' unions to come out and uh, protest for their rights. And here in Greece, that's particularly acute right now because of these new austerity measures to save... Uh, the country from defaulting on its debt, which is going to hit workers here extremely hard. They're going to basically uh, have their salaries cut and have uh, taxes hiked, so the cost of 
living is going to go up an enormous amount for people here. But then added to those, you have the kind of radical element, uh, the black bloc, who, who, who have basically used this as an opportunity to scuffle with police, to cause a bit of a fight. And they're the ones who are really leading the kind of groundswell uh, of, of, of bottle throwing towards the police, uh, and, and therefore the ones who are, who are in the front line, effectively, when the, the tear gas is, um, is thrown back. Is it up to the average citizen to resist? I think it's it's incumbent on the, the citizens to resist. I think there's there's absolutely no hope for for any way to achieve anything other than what is already happening on the political stage unless the citizenry becomes involved on an individual level. Because I, I think what we're dealing with here is is these giant institutional and international obligations that are being played out in in backroom deals in, in Berlin and in Brussels and uh, in various uh, arms of the the Anglo-American finance capital uh, world order. And, and I think if, if the individual citizens don't take it upon themselves to thrust themselves into that conversation and make their voices heard on a mass scale, then there's no possibility that this will play out in any way, uh, shape, or form for their benefit. It will only benefit those uh, Wall Street hedge funds and speculators who, as Max Kaiser recently said on your program, are selling short the Greek treasuries and engorging themselves on this crisis. And, and that's something that I think people have to make their voices heard in order to have some effect in, in hoping to shape the, the, the solution, a genuine solution to this crisis. Now, even though Greece and Iceland are very small countries compared to many others, both countries seem to have uh, seem to have had a huge effect on European and global finances. That's right. That's right. They're they're both at, at key pressure points for for the European enterprise in general, and and obviously Iceland uh, thinking of becoming an, a European Union me- member, and of course uh, Greece uh, playing sort of this pivotal role in, in testing the uh, the European monetary zone and, and the, the limits of that relationship. And uh, uh, to some extent, as, as many have uh, talked about in, in various forums, this may in fact be part of the plan that uh, destabilization of the euro may be something that the, the Anglo-American interests are, are uh, uh, playing with at this moment in order to um, perhaps give a final uh, breath of uh, life to their failed petrodollar or failing petrodollar uh, hegemony. But um, absolutely, there is a key sense in which the European Union and, and the idea of the European project in general is being tested at this time through these crises. And I think the hopeful thing is that as I say, the, these types of grassroots citizens' movements, like what we saw in Iceland, represent the possibility of individuals being able to thrust themselves back into the conversation, as opposed to these overarching political structures that are attempting to set up these vast regional institutional governments that, that really do not respond in any shape or way or form to the polity. And and once we can get the, the average citizens to really once again start taking their own destiny into their own hands, I think that can only be for the good, uh, as opposed to these uh, giant uh, monolithic regional governments that are uh, really stifling all all forms of of democratic uh, dissent. And and, uh, we've seen that, of course, with the, the the growth of the European Union government into what it is today.
We're living through exceptionally difficult times. The financial crisis and its dramatic impact on employment and budgets, the climate crisis which threatens our very survival. A period of anxiety, uncertainty and lack of confidence. Yet these problems can be overcome by a joint effort in our, and between our countries. 2009 is also the first year of global governance with the establishment of the G20 in the middle of the financial crisis. Our mission, our presidency, is one of hope, supported by acts and by deeds.